The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Good afternoon. I am Sheila Murthy, president and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us for today's discussion on the topic of money matters, the ability to pay and the affidavit of support from an employer's point of view with respect to the I-140 petition and sponsorship of the green card. Joining me in today's discussion on my panel are my two esteemed colleagues at the Murthy Law Firm, two brilliant lawyers, and I sometimes joke that I am so glad that they're there because if anything ever goes wrong, I can trust them more than I would trust almost any other lawyer in the world. Kevin Andrews has been with the firm for over 15 years at this point. Uh, He has actually worked in the non-immigrant department, the immigrant department, and the special projects department. Talk about being completely brilliant and all-rounded as an attorney. And similarly, Ivona has actually worked in the special project, the EB-5, and is now focusing on perm and green card-related issues where the the ability to pay is in focus. Of course, I don't like telling you how long I've been practicing law, but it's uh, it's a few decades. How about this? Maybe a little about three decades, so a little too long, and I have a few gray hair to show for it. So thank you again. Welcome. So in terms of a quick overview, as I said, uh, we're going to talk about the I-140 ability to pay. So as many of you are aware, the PERM labor certification process is the process that most professionals tend to use to file and obtain the the employment-based green card through an employer. So it requires the employer to file and obtain from the U.S. Department of Labor, the PWD or the prevailing wage determination. The employer has to conduct a market, a labor market test by recruiting for the position and to show to the satisfaction of the Department of Labor that there are no ready, willing, or able U.S. workers to perform the job that this foreign national that you have in place, presumably most likely working either on an H-1B or an L-1 for you, uh, is, is, you know, is, is the candidate, right? Once the perm is approved, the employer then files the I-140 immigrant petition for the worker with the USCIS. So the first one is filed with the Department of Labor, the DOL. The second one is filed with DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, slash USCIS. The approval by the USCIS of the I-140 petition is sort of like a stamp or a recognition that the sponsored worker truly has the qualifications, meets the minimum requirements for the job, and that there is a bona fide job offer um, of employment right, a bona fide offer of employment. And in order to establish that there is a bona fide offer of employment, the I-140 sponsoring employer, PERM and I-140 generally, it's the same, has to be the same unless we'll talk about it briefly later about the successor and interest, must prove that it meets the ability to pay standard or that it can afford to pay the prevailing wage, the full salary, which is offered to the foreign national worker when the worker becomes a permanent resident. 
the, uh, the what you're paying right now on an H1 or maybe the L1 is based on the H1 or L1 petition, but the green card is the future job offer. So the ability to pay the offered wage must be proven from the date that the underlying petition labor certification was filed, which is called the priority date, establishment of the priority date with the Department of Labor, and it continues for that employer until the I-140 petition is approved and technically until the green card is approved, but then we have a lively discussion maybe in store for you on that issue. So the other question we often sort of talk about is what types of evidence does the employer need to use? The law provides that the initial evidence of this requirement could be satisfied with a federal tax return, which is the most commonly used document, or an audited financial statement, but those tend to be much more expensive, or an annual report, especially when you have large publicly traded companies, you have published annual reports that is filed with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Obviously, private companies and smaller entities do not invest in either audited financial statements in most cases unless it's required for loans or they don't have annual reports. The legal standard of proof, like with all civil cases, is a preponderance of the evidence. It is not like in criminal law beyond a reasonable doubt or clear and convincing, which is in a quasi-criminal case, but what does preponderance of the evidence mean? It means that more likely than not, the employer is satisfying all of the requirements to be able to sponsor this foreign national, including being able to offer the prevailing wage during the time period that we just discussed. So Kevin, let's get into the test, the different kinds of tests. How can the employer establish or prove to the USCIS that it can meet the ability to pay tests, what we call the ATP test? Sure. Thanks, Sheila. So there's three basic tests um, that the USCIS uses to confirm the company's ability to pay the wage. Now, keep in mind, these are tests that need to be applied annually uh, every year after the priority date. So you don't just prove the ability to pay one year. It's every year from the date the priority date is established until the green card is approved. And for people from like China, Mexico, India, and the Philippines, that could be many, many years wait time. So uh, the first one would be the petitioner's net income on the tax returns. Uh, if the net income is greater or equal to the, the required wage for the green card case, then that's going to meet the ability to pay requirement. You could also combine that with the company's net current assets. So net current assets is another part of the tax return that takes into consideration, uh, you know, the net assets that the company has is min minus net liabilities. And if there's a positive value there and it's greater or equal to the prevailing wage, or if combined with net income equals the equivalent of the prevailing wage or more, and that's going to meet the prevailing wage test. Then finally, uh, the wages that are actually paid to the individual worker. So if the person is the foreign national worker is working for the company at the time that the case is being the green card case is being worked on, which is usually the case, the wages paid to the individual can count towards the prevailing wage. So if the prevailing wage for the green card case is $100,000 and the company is paying the individual $70,000 because that's what the H-1B job requires, then the company needs to show in its net income and or net current assets 
the remaining $30,000 to show it had the ability to pay the total $100,000 wage that particular year. So it's critical that its ability to pay, not actual pay, but what is actually paid can count towards meeting the ability to pay requirement. So uh, when submitting the I-140 petition is when you need to kind of show your money, prove, you know, prove that you, you can establish the ability to pay at that time. And if you're submitting the uh, company's tax returns, annual reports, audited financial statement, that would be sufficient to establish the net income and or net current asset test. If you're re relying solely on the W-2 income or the wage income, you know, you could have negative net income and negative net current assets, but if you're meeting the prevailing, your, the actual pay to the worker is equal or greater to the prevailing wage in the petition, then that's still going to work for ability to pay purposes. And again, it's an ongoing commitment that needs to be established every single year, not just one time. So in the future, you know, when you file the I-140, you might only be showing ability to pay for, you know, that one or two years, maybe probably one year from the priority date. But when the priority date becomes current again, maybe five or 10 years from then, you, ha you might have to show the tax returns or net, in net, net income, net current assets, and or W-2 wages to show every single one of those years uh, the company had the ability to pay that entire time. Thank you so much, Kevin. That was really helpful uh, and clear and really will hopefully help employers and employees who are listening to this to understand how you can meet that because that's a, usually a big reason why the I-140 petition tends to be an RFE or a denial. So besides what Kevin just explained, Ivona will now share with us what other kinds of evidence and arguments the employer can need to show the ability to pay test. So Ivona, take it away. Thank you, Sheila. First, I just want to add something to what had Kevin previously said. Um, when we are trying to um, determine the net current assets or net income for the filing of the I-140, we don't combine the net current assets and the net income um, to show it, but we can combine the W-2s and the salaries paid to the employee together with the net income or with the net current assets for the company. Um, now, for the other evidence um, and arguments that we can show um, uh, the ability to pay of a sponsoring employer um, is more in regards when, well, we're having difficulties actually proving um, the ability to pay in this particular year, for example. So um, when I want 40 petitioners and employers have a particularly bad year or years after generally having a good year financially, um, in those instances, USCIS actually allows companies who cannot show that ability to pay in any of the ways Kevin just described um, to still make an argument based on their particular situation. So um, in, in these instances, precedent cases can be used in, in situations of you know, financial difficulties. And specifically, there's a case of uh, matter of Sonegawa from 1967, uh, which supports exactly this argument that USCIS should allow employers who operate at a loss to submit documentation to show that the employer will, in fact, have the potential to pay the offered wage in the future despite them having a, you know, a, a bad year at this time. Um, so both petitioners and you know, the petitioners 
could and should use this precedent case in various situations when they're encountering financial difficulty. Um, for example, um, the most recent one we can think of is the current COVID-19 context, where you have a lot of workers who may be out sick, um, or you have raw supplies or final product shipments that are being obstructed, and all of this could in turn lead to a drop in revenue um, and net income or net current assets, um, which would prove then difficult for the employers to use to demonstrate that specific ability to pay. So in these instances where recent initial ability to pay evidence, such as, you know, the federal tax returns that Kevin discussed, um, reflect losses that can then be attributed directly, for example, to the pandemic, um, petitioners should be then prepared to submit a compelling argument as to how this direct impact of the pandemic happened on their particular business. And they should support it by probative secondary evidence um, to demonstrate that their business has otherwise been successful in the past. Um, and they anticipate and they have reasonable expectation that their, um, their success will continue, in fact, in the future past the pandemic. So um, when it comes to arguing this precedent, um, it's, it's a very subjective determination. So it requires very strong and credible documents um, that the employers present to show future profitability. So uh, what we often use is contract business plans, projections, and other documents um, to show that future um, possible success for the company. So what happens when there's multiple beneficiaries, I-140 beneficiaries? Um, does that impact the employer's ability to pay? Does USCIS focus on those issues? How does that work, Ivona? So for employers who have um, multiple um, beneficiaries that they've filed for over the course of years, that employer still has to show their continued ability to pay of their offered wage, not only for that one beneficiary, but also for all of the beneficiaries for whom that employer has filed the I-140 petitions. From the time that such petitions priority date until the time all the other beneficiaries have obtained their permanent residency as well. Um, so for employers who have any notable number of I-140 petitions, there can be an RFE request such as this, um, issued by USCIS, and it requires a very complex analysis of all of their prior I-140 petitions, um, the priority dates of those petitions, the, all of the historic payroll um, and actual payment of wages for all of those individuals, um, and financial analysis for all of those years. So let's for, say, for example, that a company filed 15 petitions, I-140 petitions, in the last five years, um, and in this instance, you know, the employer has to show um, payroll records, not just for one, but for all 15 beneficiaries for all of those last five years, in addition to the employer's actual financial records for those last five years. So whether that be tax returns, financial audited, or annual reports. Um, and then this is all compiled, carefully analyzed, presented to USCIS in, in very elaborate spreadsheets um, that show clear calculations of each beneficiary, their wages paid, 
um, to prove that the employer retains that ability um, to pay for all of the 15 beneficiaries. Wow, that was yes. a lot. And I hope everybody got the background. Kevin, did you want to add something? Yeah, I get, we get this question a lot about people who have an I-140 with an employer and then they move on to a new employer and they say, like, well, you know, what are the chances that my previous employer would withdraw the I-140? And, um, you know, they could still be sponsored by that company and come back at, at a future time. But if it's a company that's like what Ivona is talking about, they have 15 I-140s and it's a $100,000 wage each and the company needs to prove $1.5 million, you know, dollars total. But, you know, let's say five of those workers actually left and the company really only has a million dollars to show. Well, if they if they could withdraw those five and save the other 10 or responding to the 10 that they can't pay all 15 and then the whole entire ship sinks. So sometimes withdrawal of I-140s is not because of a employer retaliating. It's because of them trying to salvage their other cases. Especially we find that with small to mid-sized companies, that's more common. But the larger companies, generally, again, a percentage of the foreign national employees tends to be less than, you know, 1% or whatever. So they are less concerned and less affected by it. But smaller companies, which are, you know, users of the H1 and the green card process, tend to need to protect the employees who are still on board with them. So it's a very valid and excellent point, Kevin um, and Ivona. So what happens if the employee then wants to take advantage after the perm is approved, I-140 is approved, let's say the 485 is filed, which of course takes forever and a day if you're especially from India or China, but the, the employee is now eligible for the AC-21 adjustment of status portability. How does that impact issues pertaining to ability to pay? So yes, like Sheila said, once um, if an employee chooses to take advantage of the AC-21 provision to port their job from the current sponsoring employer to a new sponsoring employer for their 485 petition. Um, they can do that, number one, once the I-485 has actually been pending for at least 180 days. Um, and number two, um, they would have to show that it is in the same or similar occupational classification um, as in their underlining um, PERM labor cert. Um, so when they actually do um, change employers under this AC-21 provision, um, the new employer is not per se required to establish its ability to pay. Um, however, that the new company, the new sponsoring employer, they need to establish that the new job they're offering is in that same or similar occupational you know, SOC code or classification. Um, and as the job employee had previously, um, and while USCIS will not request proof of ability to pay from this new employer that they're reporting their job to, um, they may issue an RFE um, asking to verify the actual legitimacy of the new employer and their um, bona fide job offer. Um, any wage differences between the new job and the current sponsoring employer's job are not, in fact, determinative. Um, and they should not preclude the officers in, you know, establishing an approval of this AC-21 um, portability. Thank you, Ivona. And I think that it shows, you know, how different people can read it. Just while we were preparing for this session, Kevin Andrews, who's, as I told you, been in the, for the firm 15, 16 years, 
and I've been practicing for over 30 years, had a lively discussion. I thought, well, they can always come back and ask for it. And it's true that they choose not to, but could they and couldn't they? As a matter of fact, I think in a practical consideration, they have not been asking. And I recall that AYT as eighth memo that Kevin mentioned this morning, where they said they will not you know, they will focus on the new job occupational classification and not really get into that whole nine yards about the ability to pay, which I recall was music to our ears when we first heard about it about 15 years or 17 years ago. So it's true that we don't need to worry about it. And they've till now, at least we haven't seen this issue come up, which is fantastic. But what about, is there any difference than Ivona when there is some type of a success or an interest situation where a company is either acquired or spun off or merges or what have you with a new entity? How does that impact the ability to pay issue? Yeah, so um, an approved I-140 is usually very employer and job specific. Um, so that one major exception to this general rule is that the I-140 petition approval may remain valid with a new employer if that new employer, that new company, is in fact a successor in interest to the original employer. Um, now, it's important to say that it does not mean that if there's simply a name change that you should be filing a successor of interest petition. It's only when there is situations of uh, actual succession, actual merger or acquisition, where the new company has fully acquired all assets and liabilities of the previous one, and they basically consolidate their FEIN numbers. Um, in these situations, uh, the successor, um, the new the new company, they bear the burden of proof to establish all elements of the I-140 eligibility as of the priority date. Um, including the provision of the required evidence of the previous company, the predecessor, and their ability to pay the proffered wage. And then in addition, the successor's ability, the new company's ability to pay that proffered wage as of the date of the transfer of ownership. Um, so they have to show the predecessor ability to pay plus the new company's um, ability to pay and continue to pay after the transfer ownership has actually happened. Um, and this, again, you know, like Sheila discussed before, needs to be evidence until the time of immigrant visa issuance or their adjustment of status within the United States. So can either one of you answer what happens if the, comp the original successor company, let's say, wasn't around? 30 years ago when this company started and had filed it 10 years ago, but it was only created five years ago. Does it make any difference, Kevin or Ivona? Because how can they then meet the ability to pay test? As long as they can show, you know, like we've discussed before, um, in their most recent tax returns, you know, their most recent net income, net current assets, um, or they can actually show that in the future they are going to remain profitable, like we discussed before, showing all of their contracts, show, showing all of their, you know, um, future business they'll be able to conduct um, and further be able to prove that they are able to pay the whatever the wage was in the underlining labor certification. Perfect. It's Thank a good you practice. so much. It's a good practice to, you know, um, logistically, you have to file an I-140 amendment when you do this successor and in interest. Um, 
logistically, it's a good idea to do the amendment as soon as this corporate restructuring happens where this new entity takes over the immigration liabilities of the previous entity. Presumably, when this new entity takes over the liabilities of the previous entity, there's some diligence involved in knowing what their, um, you know, their profitability and their revenue and, and, and these uh, financial, you know, data that I would imagine companies would do some diligence on before, you know, buying a company. So, um, you know, presumably the, the new company, the successor company would have access to those financial records from the previous company because they would have needed that to do diligence to take over the liability of the previous company. Um, sometimes companies don't want to take over the liability of the previous company, and those companies would have to just do a new labor in I-140. Um, and there could be, like, non-immigration strategic, you know, tax reasons why they would do that, but it would translate into a much longer delay for the, for the worker and probably, a, a, um, you know, an extra expense for the company. But they may determine that the, co- the previous company's financials, that, like, that liability was not worth taking over. So that, that's going to be an individual case-by-case kind of determination. And I, I think we often joke in the immigration world that whenever there's a merger and acquisition, immigration is the last thing that all, you know, there's the merger and acquisition lawyers and the tax lawyers and the finance people. You know, immigration seems like an afterthought a lot of the time. So, yes, a lot of times we're thinking about this stuff after the fact, but hopefully if we're thinking about it proactively, um, it, it'll be part of the diligence of the transaction itself. Excellent point. And you know what generally happens, of course, that the larger the company, if the num- number of foreign national employees is only, you know, 5%, which still could be hundreds of employees, then it's less important if it's a company which is, you know, heavily, let's say, H1B dependent, it's more likely because, you know, that's front and center for them. But good, good, excellent right. points made uh, here. The next issue which we're going to touch upon uh, briefly is, of course, the I-864 affidavit of support which if it's an, in an employment-based context, you may say, why the heck would I need to deal with it? But the bottom line is, even in an employment-based concept, uh, context rather, in the employment-based context, if the employer um, actually owns 5% or more of the company, the employee being sponsored also has a 5% or greater ownership in the company, then in that case, the I-864 affidavit of support is required in an employment-based context, but in general, we use the I-864 affidavit of support primarily in family-based cases. Uh, and what is the I-864? It's the contract between the sponsoring, uh, between the sponsoring person, the entity, the individual, and the federal government. It basically is a promise to repay the value of the benefits that is received by the beneficiary, um, you know, and it has been a requirement for a couple of decades or longer at this point. Um, Generally, the sponsor is a U.S. citizen, a U.S. national, a lawful permanent resident, and the requirement in the family-based context is that the person needs to be at least 18 years old, domiciled in the United States, and able to meet income requirements of at least 125% above the poverty level in terms of their tax returns. Uh, in majority of our employees' cases, we don't find that to be an issue or the employer, uh, but in some family-based cases, it could potentially be an issue with regard to the ability to pay for doing the family-based sponsorships, right? Or in those cases, sometimes you could ob- obtain 
and apply and request what's called a joint sponsor. Um, and that person is generally a relative, unless there are very unusual humanitarian exceptions. But even then, the law requires that only a certain number of people can act as joint sponsors. So whose income counts? It's the petitioner slash sponsor, the person who is with the sponsor, living with the sponsor, generally residing with the sponsor, the spouse, adult or married child, parents, siblings, etc., who can sign the I-864A as joint sponsors. Uh, the intending immigrant, by the way, uh, if, if, the, if the spouse of the sponsor, then that person's income could actually also be used to satisfy the uh, affidavit of support financial requirements. Um, and of course, all of that is usually we use similar to what we, uh, Kevin and Ivona just explained. You can use the tax returns to show that what the total income is to meet all of these tests. Again, we're majority of employment-based cases, this is not a non-issue, but it's a big deal in almost every single family-based case. What about using other kinds of income or other assets and other issues? Kevin, I'm going to invite you because I can see you are dying to share something with our audience. Uh, yeah, so uh, th there is flexibility here. You don't have to just use income. You can also use assets to meet the uh, the financial requirement, that 125% over the poverty level threshold you mentioned. So assets can be cash, stocks, bonds, real estate, other types of property uh, that can be used to meet that requirement. It's, it's also possible to have a household member or even a non-family member help to meet the income uh, or asset, whichever one you're using requirements, um, if the spouse does not meet them by themselves. So if the sponsor needs the income of uh, the spouse household member to satisfy that, that poverty, that 125% poverty requirement, then that, the individual can complete the form I-864A and include their, their income, their assets. Um, household members could be spouse, siblings, parents, adult, uh, or married uh, sons and daughters, ch uh, children who reside with the sponsor. And uh, again, they would have to file the I-864A. Uh, for, for sponsors that are self-employed, you know, that self-employment is not as straightforward um, like uh, w W-2 wages. So to verify that income, things like uh, the tax schedules, the 1099s uh, that are submitted along with the, the tax returns, whether they're personal tax returns or through the business. And in addition, the sponsor may need to submit a statement from an independent tax pre preparer or a CPA uh, assessing that their, their income of their business when you're dealing with self-employed sponsors. And then finally, like a joint sponsor, if, if insufficient income and assets, uh, if the income or assets are insufficient, then you can obtain a joint sponsor like a U.S. citizen, uh, national or lawful permanent resident who is at least 18 years old, domiciled in the United States and has the sufficient income. This does not need to be an individual related to the beneficiary using the joint sponsor. Thank you, Kevin. Okay, so we're going to, I know we're always trying to be between 30 and 45 minutes with most of our teleconferences because we're sensitive to your time constraints and we are right around 35 minutes or 35 minutes or so now. So we're just going to touch upon one last issue and then try to wrap it up. 
which is the domicile issue. So generally, again, in family-based cases, you have the issue for domicile or requirement for physically living in the United States. Ivona, would you like to go over that with our audience? Yes, thank you, Sheila. So we wanted to discuss this because it has come up quite a few times lately um, where, especially for consular processing cases, the NVC, the National Visa Centers, also are requesting evidence of domicile and questioning it. Um, so what is domicile, right? Well, it refers to your country of residence. So it can be either where you currently live or where you intend on living for the long term. Um, of course, as long as that's in, within the U.S. Um, if the residents abroad, um, so if you left the U.S. only temporarily and the petitioner, the sponsor, has actually maintained the U.S. address or been employed um, outside the United States, um, you can still demonstrate U.S. domicile. Um, the, basically, the Department of State has developed guidance um, on how a financial petitioner may show that their time abroad was in fact temporary and that they have maintained domicile. And the way to show that is um, show the sponsor's payments of the federal tax returns for the years they've been abroad, um, possibly their voting records, um, maintenance of their property within the U.S., um, bank, investment accounts, pension accounts, um, permanent mailing addresses they've maintained, um, or any other, you know, their situation-specific documents they are able to show that everything that they've spent time abroad is actually temporary. The problems arise when the petitioner is not domiciled in the U.S., so then the sponsor still qualifies um, to submit this affidavit of support, but what they have to show is by, like Sheila discussed before, by a preponderance of the evidence, meaning more likely than not, that the sponsor will, in fact, establish their domicile within the U.S. on or before the date that their family, you know, the principal intending immigrant um, admission or adjustment of status. So they would have to be domiciled together when they're coming in or prior to them coming in. Um, so how do they show that? Well, they can show opening U.S. bank accounts, transferring funds from abroad to the United States, finding a lease, possibly signing in the U.S., buying properties in the U.S., making investments in the U.S., registering their children in the U.S. schools, um, trying to apply for Social Security, um, voting in the U.S. elections. So these are all, you know, day-to-day -day, um, examples of how you can show your intent to actually uh, be domiciled here in the future in the U.S., um, now, historically, these cases have been forwarded to the consul without requiring evidence of the domicile. But like I said, recently they've begun issuing these requests for evidence um, in cases where the 864, um, the affidavit of support form, they list a foreign address for the actual sponsor. Um, so this comes up when they're abroad, of course. If you're in the U.S., you're not going to have this issue. Um, but if a sponsor does not have a U.S. address, you know, it's recommended that you submit evidence of these concrete steps um, I discussed before to establish your U.S. domicile as you're submitting this initially um, to the NBC. So that way you can avoid delays. Thank you, Ivona. So as you can see from the discussion with Kevin Andrews and with Ivona Bradfield, the entire issue of the financial meeting the ability to pay test for the employer or the family member who's doing the sponsorship 
to, to meet and to cross that threshold is fairly complex. And this is just a small piece of that puzzle in terms of employment-based or family-based sponsorship. So we hope that we have given you all a sense of what is required, whether it's a PERM I-140 petition, and, which is in the employment-based context, or a family-based petition where you're sponsoring your parent or a sibling, et cetera, for the green card case. Um, and just to understand that unless this piece of the puzzle is satisfied, the entire puzzle won't work and the green card sponsorship and the green card will not get finally approved, whether it's the issuance of the immigrant visa from the U.S. consular post abroad or USCIS approving the 485 adjustment of status within the United States. So unless Kevin or Ivona has anything else to add, I would like to try and wrap up. Kevin, Ivona? I actually have one thing to add um, that has come to our attention recently in the cases we've been filing. Um, when it comes to I-140s, um, uh, for employers who have actually taken on the PPP loans um, or the Paycheck Protection Program loans um, recently during the pandemic, um, that might cause the net income on their taxes to actually deflate um, and not show actual income on their federal tax submission. Um, so the income that they generate looks like from the PPP loan forgiveness um, simply would not be recognized as income for tax purposes. This was something that was determined by the Congress, and just now we're coming across it as individuals and employers are filing their taxes. Um, and, you know, in these instances, like we discussed before, you want to be using the, the Sonagava precedent case we discussed to show that, you know, in the past, the company has been successful and in the future they will be successful um, and that the deflation of income is due to the PPP loan um, and the pandemic. Well, interesting. And that income does show up, though, on the balance sheet of the company though it will not show up on the tax return because, like you correctly said, Ivona, Congress determined that it would not be considered as income and the forgiveness, both the loan itself amount and the uh, forgiveness part of it, but it can be and it will show up on the balance sheet of the company. So it is it can be shown towards what the issue that Kevin Andrews touched upon, which is the assets and liabilities and the net current assets. So it's an interesting formula. Again, it just shows uh, the entire discussion with Kevin Andrews and Ivona Bradfield and myself really shows why it's very helpful to have good, strong legal team guiding you through this process um, and holding your hand because there are so many traps for the unwary, right? Um, so on behalf of Kevin Andrews, Ivona Bradfield and myself, Sheila Murthy, and the entire Murthy Law Firm team, we would like to thank you for joining us for today's lively and fun discussion on the issue of ability to pay and the financial obligations of employers or sponsoring petitioners. And with that, I hope you all have a wonderful Thanksgiving season. Um, happy holidays. And we will be seeing you, I guess, next month during December. Take care and thank you, everyone. Good afternoon. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.